Well, we, we find ourselves at the, the end of Exodus chapter 12. This is the, the long-awaited day. This has been the, the long-promised day since, the, since God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hundreds of years ago. This has been the day that has been building momentum very slowly since the arrival of Moses on the scene 40 years prior. This is the day, this is the moment that has been building in anticipation since all of the horrendous and amazing terrible plagues started being poured out onto the Egyptian country a few months ago. It's, it's been a few months that Moses has been directed by God to oversee these plagues being poured down. But even though this is the day that will define the Israelites... Even though this is the day that we've been waiting for for 430 years, even though this is the week now, the 12th sermon in Exodus that we've been building to, yet this Exodus is not the point of this Exodus. In fact, I know the name is a little bit, a little bit deceiving, but this Exodus is not even the point of the book of Exodus. This exodus is not even the point of the Israelite nation. It is not the point or the centerpiece of the Bible. The point of the exodus, the point of the book of Exodus, the point of the whole Bible is the salvation that is given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is transfigured. Some of you know that story. Some of you are, are new and haven't uh, 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 read that before. Jesus goes up on the mountain and he's praying and uh, 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 some of his disciples are with him and they say that in front of them, his face changed form in front of them. He was transfigured and he became dazzling white, shining in his glory. And then it says this in Luke chapter 9 verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him. Two men appeared next to Jesus, lifted off the ground, shining in glory, and they were speaking with him. And Luke says, it was Moses and Elijah. It was Moses, the man we're reading about in the book of Exodus, who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the law of God, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. He symbolized the law. And then we have the arrival also of Elijah, the first great prophet to the nation of Israel in the land. And so what we have in Moses and Elijah is a summation or a representation of the law and the prophets. The entirety of the Old Testament is symbolized in these two men with Jesus right in the middle of them because he is the point of both of them. Moses is the one who led a tremendous exodus out of Egypt. Elijah is the one who had an amazing exodus because he didn't die but departed from the earth in a chariot of fire up to the heavenly places with God. But it is Jesus who is going to have an even greater exodus. The word exodus, the Greek word exodus, simply means departure. And look at what Luke says. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke to Jesus of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Don't you see that Moses, he remembers his exodus and it was nothing compared to what is about to occur. Elijah remembered his amazing departure to heaven in a literal chariot of fire. That's pretty awesome. And yet he is talking to Jesus of something that is a much greater departure from the earth than that. So, so what is it that Jesus' exodus means? What do we mean? What did they mean talking to him about his exodus soon to occur at Jerusalem? We mean this. 
that Jesus was going to be exodus, departed, taken away in his death on the cross as a payment for our sins. He was going to be offered up as the sacrificial lamb to rescue the people of God. He was going to triumphantly exodus the grave and leave it behind, being resurrected triumphantly over death, sin, and Satan, and therefore stand victorious. Then he was going to exodus this world in a glorious ascension like Elijah, but instead of just going to heaven, he was going to go to the throne of heaven from where he would rule and reign and one day return, not to to speak of of another exodus greater than his but to complete his exodus which means bring us into the new heavens and the new earth this salvation ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about the centerpiece of the Bible the point of all of scripture the ultimate point of every book in the Bible is Jesus exodus And so as we go back and we're going to read Exodus 12, I want you to see the book of Exodus and Moses in the book of Exodus and the Israelites in the book of Exodus simply standing up to you and saying, if you will read me, please look to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment. Read this book, yes. Read these pages, absolutely. Was it a real and true historical event that actually happened? Yes. And yet, it does not culminate in itself. It points passionately to the Exodus of the Lord Jesus Christ out of death, out of sin, away from Satan, and one day out of this cursed world into a glorified state. That is the point of our study today. And so our task will be to read the rest of chapter 12 and half of chapter 13, and in it to see how these things point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at Exodus chapter 12 and verse 33. The morning before light of the Passover, while the Egyptian sons lay dead in their bed and the screams of the parents raised up to gods that did not hear them. Verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks over their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had each asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. Can you just imagine the scene? While they're there mourning the death of their firstborn, still crying, here's a knock on the door and an Israelite stands and says, Moses told us to come and collect all of your valuables. And they give it up. It says, because God had given favor to the Israelites in the eyes of the Egyptians, so that they left them, so that they let them have all that they had asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about six hundred thousand men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes on the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they did not have time, for they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. For us, that would be the equivalent of your people living in a certain area since 1593. 
a long, long time. 1593, 430 years they had been living there. Verse 41. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now he starts telling us again about the institution of the Passover meal to be celebrated every year. Verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. So foreigners could eat it as long as they were in the covenant. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of your land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who visits and sojourns among you. Verse 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that day, on that very day, the Lord brought out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their armies. Chapter 13. Yahweh said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, belongs to me. Go to, go to verse 6 of chapter 13. Seven days you will eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No, no leaven shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen in your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Verse 9. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you up out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year. Verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers that he shall give it to you, then you shall set apart for the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among you, your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hands and on your frontlets and as frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us up out of Egypt. May God bless the reading of his most inerrant, perfect, inspired, authoritative word in our midst. Amen. What we see here today 
of many themes that point to us to the ultimate and the better, the more perfect and complete exodus of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the first thing we're going to consider is the fact that when the Israelites left, they left in a great haste. Urgency was demanded by the Egyptians because they wanted them out. But this was merely an echoing of what God had first commanded, which is that they were to eat the Passover hastily, they were to stay ready with their shoes on and their keys in their pocket, so that as soon as God called them to go, they could run out of the land in readiness to his command. Urgency was commanded. The departure was to be swift and certain. And they went up, as we read here, a mixed multitude meaning that they were not ethically pure. They were, they were ethically, ethnically mixed. They had many foreigners, non-Israelite people by their bloodline, who had joined the Israelite faith when they saw the Israelite God completely destroy and body slam every single one of the Egyptian gods. These are people who, who, as we spoke last week, the same son of God's grace sometimes hardens clay in people's hearts and sometimes melts the ice of people's hearts. These were people who, by God's grace, had been made people with an icy heart so that, so that as the grace of God was put on display, that son melted them. They, they came in submission. They repented and they followed and owned themselves to the Lord God. So, in other words... God was not simply saying all those who are born of Abraham depart Egypt, but all those who name the name of Yahweh depart from Egypt. You did not have to be born to Abraham, but you had to own as your own God, name the name of Abraham's God who was Yahweh. And he was telling them, in other words, by their haste in the Exodus, that they are not just saved from one night. You you weren't just saved from one Passover. The the salvation that God was bringing his people was not one night, one event salvation. It was a whole, thorough, entire life, total nation removal salvation. He was commanding them to, to not just remember a single night, but get up and get out. My salvation is more than that. There is much more that you have not yet seen that I am yet going to do for you. And this, this is a picture of Jesus' exodus for us. That when the gospel is preached to us, the gospel of repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is not merely a saviour from hell, but also a transformer of your life. There are many Christians, I pray not here, though I guess at least a few. There are many Christians who try and own Jesus as the one who saved me from the Passover night. He's the one who saved me from hell. He's the one who forgave my sins. We'll call him my savior. However, he does not transform my life. He has no right. He does not call me out of Egypt because I like staying here. He does not take my life out of a sinful lifestyle because I enjoy it very, very much. These are, these are Christians who want to own Jesus as savior, but not Lord. And this haste, this urgency that God commands the Israelites out of Egypt is a picture for us that we must urgently, hastily leave our life of sin. Can you imagine being an Israelite? On that, on that night of the Exodus, the morning of the Exodus, as everybody else is getting together, and at the call of the Lord, everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from Egypt, and they say, well, that's really nice for some of you. We'll call you the, the, the radical disciples. But now that I'm saved from Passover wrath, I'm going to stay in Egypt, continue to uh, maybe plunder the Egyptians, and, and maybe even sell myself into slavery again to make a quick buck. 
That is how foolish it is when a Christian will try and name the name of the Lord Jesus as Saviour, but not in their life display a departure, an urgent, a hurried running away from the lifestyle that was sending them to hell originally. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let there be. If you claim that the wrath has passed over you, if you claim that the blood of Jesus has been the the Lamb's blood that redeemed you, if that is the case, then let every person who names the name of the Lord depart, exodus, get out from the land of iniquity, or God will have no part in you. He will leave you behind because the salvation you claim is a false, non-existent salvation. Somebody claiming, I'm, I'm going to be an Israelite that stays in Egypt. God would say, there's no such thing. You are an Egyptian to me. So also, there's no saved people that God does not transform their life. And hastily, urgently, every Christian knows, every true born-again Christian knows the experience of this. That when God grabbed your heart with a faith in Jesus, there was also, in ways that you could not have done yourself, in ways that you could not have mustered strength for yourself, a breaking of chains in your heart, a, a release in your soul from what you once loved to be able to start progressively walking away from sin. Let it be so for every person who calls the Lord Jesus Christ in this church. Show by us by our lives that we are those who have taken part in the exodus of Jesus Christ. But look also at verse 35 and 36 of chapter 12. As they leave and as they are walking out, they obey the command of Moses to go into their Egyptian neighbor's house, knock on the door and take their silver and gold jewelry, their clothing, and so they plundered the Egyptians. They were going to need money in the future journey for trade. They were going to start need. Uh, they, they were going to need riches. In fact, also for building the tabernacle. They didn't know this yet, but God was going to use much of that gold to build the tabernacle so that they could worship God in the wilderness. We also know that they were going to need uh, the clothing for the journey ahead of them. And so God supplied them with everything they needed at the point of their departure. Now, now here's not the application for the Christian life. You come to Jesus, you get to rob your neighbors. No. You you become a Christian and and God will will take everything that's ever been done against you and multiply it back to you. And and brother, sister, raise a hand, sow a seed in faith. The Lord Jesus will give to you riches and money and health and wealth. Absolutely not. That is not anywhere to be found in the pages of Scripture. God does not promise gold, silver, fancy clothing to those who trust in him by faith. That's that's blasphemous, it's idolatrous, and it looks a lot more like when they bend down and worship the golden calf in a couple of chapters. That is not at all what the, uh, the, the application here for us is. Rather, the, the application that we can see is that in Jesus' exodus, when he, when he calls on his people, be saved, and he, he brings us out of death, and he brings us out of sin, and brings us to himself, what he does is blesses us with riches, just not physical riches. 
Physical riches if he sees that necessary, but that is for some and not for others. But what every single one of us has is the riches of the blessings of Jesus in the gospel, everything we are going to need for our pilgrimage on earth, everything we are going to need for the Christian life, God supplies richly for us from the moment that we are saved. Do you know that there is no no simple thing as a second blessing experience in the Christian life? You receive every blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ in the moment that you are joined to him by faith and faith alone. You don't have to wait until your baptism to receive assurance. You don't have to wait until taking communion to know you have the Spirit. You don't have to wait until your discipleship class or your Bible study or your knowledge or your membership comes through and then you can know that you have spiritual gifting for service. Rather, every Christian... Even if the first time you had faith in Jesus was five minutes ago when I described the gospel, if you are one who has faith in Christ and faith alone, you have every single blessing that God wishes to give his children already in your account. You have been furnished with the spiritual gifting in order to serve God. You have been empowered with the presence of God's spirit for your entire life And you have the inheritance of a perfect eternal life in heaven and in the glorified heaven and earth after you die. That is already yours, even if you can't see it yet. And in evangelism sometimes on the street, or as I've talked with with cousins or friends, etc., etc., some of the, the frequent question is, I'm convinced of my sin, I'm convinced Jesus is the Savior, but... But what happens after I give my life to Jesus? Can I trust him Him with, with my perseverance? How, how can I be sure that tomorrow I'll be a Christian? And next, I, I don't think I have that strength. And here's the promise of the gospel. If you come to Jesus, you will be given everything you need to persevere. Okay, well, what, about, what about my livelihood? I mean, if I become a Christian, I need to stop doing this or stop stealing that or change my job or, 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 or some other kind of uh, uh, example or mixture of those. And here is the fact. You seek first the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He will add to you whatever you need in his will. Oh, but what about, people will say, what about my friends and my family? Aren't I going to lose some of them? And, and how do I know I'll be able to go on without them? And Jesus says to those who give up their fathers and mothers their brothers and sisters, to you will be given back a hundredfold in this life, in the people of the church, the redeemed people of God. Whatever you give up for the Lord Jesus Christ, it is giving up dirt for the gold of heaven itself. You will be, in the moment you trust in Christ, furnished, made rich and wealthy with everything your life in Christ will need. No Christian has ever been saved without being immediately furnished with every blessing in Christ, which is sufficient for every trial that God sends us in this life. And then third, look at, look at what we see also here in chapter 12, is the reality of, of faith. We touched on this last week, but, but this comes up in every part of the story of the book of Exodus. I was talking with my wife about this, this story, this amazing tale in Scripture yesterday, and she quipped this, and I've claimed it as mine, so quote me when you say it. But so often, the promises of God seem impossible, and obedience looks ridiculous. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can put your hand up and say, that is exactly right. I, I remember a moment, I remember a trial, I remember a time, I remember my conversion maybe. When, when the promises of God seemed impossible, 
And the act of obedience that he was calling for looked ridiculous. It didn't, it didn't check up on the, on, on the budget board. It, it didn't make sense in the scales. It was ridiculous and the promises seemed too good to be true or just outright impossible. But true saving faith given by the Spirit is able to appropriate both and say, I see the re- impossible promises of God and I believe them. Because what is even more impossible Whatever impossibility God seems to be promising, the greater impossibility still is that he would ever break a promise. That's the greatest impossibility. So that even if a promise of God looks illogical, as it did to the Israelites, still then it is your best, most logical bet, and faith is able to understand that because God would never lie. He is unable to break his promises. He has said over and over again to Moses, I am Yahweh, the God who is steadfast in keeping my covenants, abounding in steadfast love. This is God. Unable to... Can you think about what it would have been like for the Israelites? How much faith they needed in this exodus? They're standing, like we said, in the land that they have known for 430 years. They've, they've never, they were slaves, right? Then you're not allowed to go on holidays as slaves. They've never been past the Red Sea. They've never been to the Sinai Peninsula where God met Moses. They've never heard or even seen, the, the, sorry, they've never seen or been to the, to the land called Canaan. Do they even know that it exists? Or is this all a big ruse of Moses of some kind, which they blame him for later? They're demanded, if they will act in obedience here, to stake their faith in the promises of God. They were under the threat and the opposition of the greatest nation that had ever existed on planet Earth, who had a bunch of swords, arrows, and chariots. They were following a leader that they had only known for a few months. And what is even more ridiculous, what would be even more ridiculous... The one thing more ridiculous than getting up that morning and walking out of Egypt, taking people's riches, the one more ridiculous thing than that would be to live through the plagues, would be to live through the miracles from heaven and not obey God. That would be even more ridiculous. And so it is for the Christian. The the, the things that Jesus calls us to, there is much faith involved in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. I, I want to sympathize with, the, with those who are new believers or maybe weak believers or young believers in our midst today or maybe those who are inquiring and not yet saved. We understand that in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for faith, you are asked to believe truly, seemingly ridiculous things or at least things that cannot be seen and touched. You are, you are asked to believe in invisible realities. The, the, the reality that in the death of this man, Jesus, there was a divine transaction where God was punishing him for our sins and he was paying for our atonement. You, you're called to believe the fact that 2,000 years ago, this man rose from the dead triumphantly and will never die again. That he rose up to heaven, floating. That the Spirit is in our midst and that anybody who believes in this will have an eternity in heaven after you die and the Spirit comes to you in your faith. This is all invisible realities. But the one more ridiculous thing than that would be to stake your eternity on the way you're living now. It's to cross your fingers and say, I'll stay in my sin and hope for the best on Judgment Day. You know that that is a bankrupt hope. The one more ridiculous thing the, the, the far more ridiculous thing than coming to an invisible Jesus, 
than coming to a, to, to a, to a faith in a, in a man that you've never personally, physically seen or met. The much more ridiculous thing is to stain your sins and dare to meet God on judgment day dressed as you are. That is far more ridiculous. Even though it, it feels as if it takes a lot of faith, the exodus of Jesus Christ is even more sure and even more powerful than Jesus. The, the, sorry, than, than the exodus of Moses. And so if we look at the Israelites and say they, they struggled with some faith, they, they left in faith, they, they obeyed what they were called to do by appropriating faith into obedience, and we look at them and say, not one of them came long term to regret it. And so it can be for the Christian. So it will be for you if you're a non-believer and you're looking to Jesus and you're considering salvation, I want you to take your doubt by the scruff of the neck and if you can't throw him into the river, then drag him behind you and say, we are going to Jesus Christ. He is the one sure salvation. He is the one, one person given from heaven upon whom if I believe, I will be saved. He is the one person who died for my sin. And so whatever doubt I still have, I will trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and expect him to deal with my doubt. So it is in the exodus of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we can see in this, this, this mysterious for us, odd for us, command here of the consecration of the firstborn. This is, even just culturally, an extremely unfamiliar practice to us, which would be quite familiar to maybe other cultures today who are still living out ancient traditions, or it would have made a lot more sense in an ancient sort of world. But we read this and we're somewhat confused. Here's what God commands. He commands that for every clean animal they have, that whenever they have a, a, a baby, a kid or a ewe, depending on the animal, every firstborn to a clean animal is to be taken and considered as belonging to God. He owns the first, he owns the best. They take that and they sacrifice it to the Lord as a burnt offering and the meat is taken and eaten by the Levites. Secondly, if your unclean animal, the unclean animals you're not allowed to sacrifice to God, if those animals have a baby, the first baby you take and you either break its neck in the field because it belongs to God, not to you, or you can keep it if you take a second or third born of a clean animal and go and replace the unclean animal with the clean. So you have, to, you have to either kill it or kill another animal in its place. And then, of course, there is the children, the human children. Every firstborn that opens the womb of a woman, the firstborn into a family belongs to God. But God despises human sacrifice. And while other religions of the day might have, and still today, sacrificed babies to God, what God commands is that that child belongs to me. Consider it as mine, but I offer you a redemption price. You can and you must pay it, and you get your child back. And the redemption price was a, first, was a lamb that you would give in place of your child, and it would be sacrificed. Otherwise, you pay five shekels of silver if you didn't have a lamb. Now, now that just seems, especially at this point, in what seems like a climax of the story of Exodus is they're just picking up steam. They've, they've gathered at Ramesses and they've, they've continued to uh, uh, get everybody together as they travel to Succoth, which is on the east, and they're about to get up out of here, and the tale just seems to stop. 
the momentum sort of grinds as we have this odd detail about how to celebrate the, last, the, 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 the Passover and how to consecrate sons. But we need to understand that this is in fact included right here in this moment because it is so conceptually tied to the Passover. Here's what God wanted the Israelites to understand. They were to understand that the night before, every, every household had a dead child in it because God had claimed the children for themselves. And here are the Israelites leaving Egypt with all of their firstborns, with all of their, their children still alive, and they were to not take the grace that they had experienced for granted. They were to, through the active participation in a sacrifice, they were to be saying with their practice, my child is only alive by grace. They are not living because we are a more righteous nation. They are not living because we deserved to keep our children. We had committed idolatry in Egypt. We had sinned against God. We also were unrighteous in God's eyes. The only reason my little boy, my little girl, my firstborn children are alive today is because God held out the salvation of grace under the blood of the Lamb. And as a reminder of that, they would shed the blood of lambs continuously to set that reminder, as it says here in the passage, as a stamp on the hand or a headband on the forehead. This is one of the languages that come up over and over again in Scripture. It's mentioned in Revelation, the mark on the hand or the forehead. And the idea is ownership. The idea is a continual reminder. If, if you get a, get a horrible pimple on, on formal day or on a wedding day and it's right in the middle of your forehead, you're going to notice it. If you want to remind, uh, remember, anything, anybody else do this? You, you want to remember something, you know you'll forget, so you grab a Sharpie, write it on the back of your hand. I remember working in the hospital, I'd do that all the time. It did not strike me with confidence when I saw a doctor with drugs written on the back of his hand. That started making me nervous. But we're back to the point. You, the back of the hand, the middle of the eyes, is somewhere that is so in front of you, it is a continual reminder of what owns you. And so that is what God was commanding. Now you might ask, what's the deal with the firstborn? If we're all under grace... Why doesn't every child have to be dedicated and redeemed? Why doesn't every animal birth have to be sacrificed to God because everything belongs to him? Why does God only want the first and not the whole lot? Why does God claim ownership over the first and not everything? It's a very good question, but in fact he does. When God claims the firstborn, he's doing a similar thing to when he commands the first tenth in the tithe. He's not saying, I only want the first. By taking the first, he's saying, I have it and everything under it. I have it and everything that comes after it. He's, it's like a, like a nation maybe setting a port on the mouth of a river before you come into their lands. And you may say, why, why do they only take taxes on that little strip of river right there? And of course, you say they don't. They take taxes off of all that comes into the whole nation, but you enter through the mouth. It's, it's symbolic of everything behind it. So when God killed, in other words, the firstborn of the Egyptians, they were not to simply read into that the firstborn were guilty, the firstborn was under God's wrath, but rather all of us were under God's wrath. In the ancient mindset, the firstborn was symbolic of the household and the future children as well. 
So that, so that every single household, it is, it is not that, that you would be a mother or a brother or a father or a sister and be sitting in the household and as the firstborn die, you say, well, I'm glad I'm not punished in this wrath. Well, I'm glad I don't have to suffer and go through anything. Because if the firstborn is killed, the whole household suffers. And this is what God is saying to the, to the Israelites. That as you go out and I take your firstborn, what I'm implicitly telling you is, you all belong to me. The whole womb and everything that comes out of it. The whole family and the whole nation. You are all a people. Say it with me, Israelites. You are all a people saved by grace. That was the mantra that God was instilling into the Israelite people. They were to know for a fact that they were a people saved by the blood of a lamb living every day by grace. That's what God wanted to drill into their foreheads, stamp on the back of their hands so that they never forgot. And, and this, of course, is the, the lesson that we have as participants in the exodus of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater and better exodus. Instead of coming each Sunday and, and some churches do, do baby dedications, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if, if when you bring your baby you have to also bring a lamb? And here's the pastor with a bucket and a gut bucket and just slaughters it on stage. The Lord, we thank you for this child and pray over the, the parent. No one would go to that church. But, but, but that would be pointless. We don't need to do that anymore. We don't offer up five shekels of silver for every, every firstborn child. Although it's not a bad, a bad practice. Keep it in mind. Pray about it. But rather what we remember is that instead of having to give our firstborn son and then buy it back, we recall and remember that God gave his firstborn son and by his blood bought us back. So that Jesus is both the firstborn son and he is the lamb redeeming the firstborn son. So that every single one of us by faith in Jesus are called or, or, or unified into the firstborn sonness of Jesus Christ. And we are those redeemed back from death redeemed back from the gods of, Israel, of, of Egypt, redeemed back from the, from the slavery of sin because the firstborn son of God has come and been the perfect and final redemption price paid for us. That is how we must remember every single day. You get up in the morning, you know your sin, or maybe you get tempted to be, to be cocky and haughty and prideful. We remind ourselves... I am not my own. I was bought with a price. Every single Sunday we gather and we read the scripture and sing to the Lord Jesus and hear the preaching and we encourage one another. What we are doing is reminding ourselves we are a people saved by undeserved grace. We are a people saved by grace alone through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. That's what you remind yourself. And you just, you just find how practical that is to recall every single day. Well, we also see here the Passover. And in the Passover, towards the, the end of chapter 12 and verse 43 and onwards, and in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread in chapter 13, 3 and onwards, what we see is that God had commanded a continual remembrance. The, the first day, the, the 14th of Nisan, the, the 14th day of the first month was, a, was the Passover celebration where they killed and ate the lamb in their houses. Then they had seven days of the feast of unleavened bread. And on the last day, they had another large Sabbath celebration. 
what God, that, that was the, the, the feast of Passover, sorry, the, the celebration of Passover, and then the feast of the unleavened bread. Now, we recalled this last week, but on a, on a day of communion, let us remember why God had done such a thing, commanding his people to do these. Is it because he loves a party? Yes, hallelujah, heaven will be a party. Is it because he loves food and wants us to enjoy food? <laughs> Amen, hallelujah, yes, he does, and yes, he will in heaven. But what is the, the more spiritual message that is coming through here? First of all, it is the reminder of, or the demand for continual remembrance. This exodus of Moses, this exodus out of Egypt, needed to not merely be a story they tell, it needed to be an identity they grasp. God did not want it to merely be an event that they remember. They wanted every future Israelite who is generations removed from the Exodus, to be living and to sense an identity with that first generation that God called up out of Egypt. So so that every, every single generation of Israelites would say in their liturgy, God brought us up out of Egypt. God told the fathers of every generation, whether or not that father actually left Egypt or not, he was to say to his son, This is a reminder that God brought me up out of Egypt. And so it is in the the remembrance of the Lord's Supper, in the remembrance of the communion, it is not merely a memorial. It is not merely that we come and say, oh, that's right, Easter. Oh, that's right, Jesus died. Oh, there was an event very long ago. It is not merely to be a reminder. It is to be a mantra for us by which we personally and corporately identify ourselves with the dead, buried, and resurrected Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to become more than an event we remember, but something that defines us. We are a people of the blood of the Lamb. We are a people washed by the blood of Jesus. We are a people passed over by the wrath of God. That is what we remember and recite to ourselves and teach each other Every time we walk down the front, we take communion, we eat the body, we drink the blood. It is a communal and corporate reminder of who you truly are by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we see in the Unleavened Bread Festival, in the the Passover meal, we are told and reminded here that it was only for those who were in the covenant. Not those who are blood relatives of Abraham. We saw if you're a foreigner and you wanted to join yourself to God, that's fine, but do it through the covenant. And how did you enter the old covenant? Through the circumcision of all the males in your family. And so God was only willing to to commune in this Passover meal and to be worshipped in the unleavened feast. He was only willing to enter in that relational way with people who related to him through his covenant. He determined the the terms by which we could approach him. He determined who is acceptable, who is his people, who is forgiven. He determined that. And the determination was through the doors of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so if you were not circumcised, you were not in the covenant. It was unfitting, it was blasphemous, it was wrong for you to come and take the unleavened bread and to, and to feast on the lamb of the, of the Passover. It was wrong. And so it is even with the Lord's Supper 
but even more highly with the gospel. That there are people who want to enjoy in the feast of salvation. They, they want to taste of forgiveness of sins. They, they, want, they want to sprinkle some eternal life. They want, to, they want to drink the cup of going to heaven. They, they want a taste of those things, but they refuse to come to the blessings of God through the new covenant, which is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the message of what this element of the, of the meal and the feast tell us is that if you are not in God's covenant, you receive none of his blessings. If there is every blessing for the spiritual believer who has embraced Jesus Christ by faith, there is only cursing for those who remain outside of Jesus, especially those who have come so close, heard the gospel so many times, and even seen the Lord's Supper put on display. There is never a time that you can partake in church, that you can read the Bible, that you can hear the gospel. There is never a time that you can do it and walk away changed. You either walk away softened in heart, believing by faith, or you walk away hardened, calloused, and hardened against God's grace, just like Pharaoh. This is the warning. That, that as we come forward and we take the Lord's Supper later on, and, 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 and you are told, if you're not a believer, don't take it. It's, it's not for you. The, the reason is not to make some harsh distinction. The, the reason is not to, to make fun or, to, or, or because it's, we only have limited uh, amounts and we didn't cater for you and it's magical bread and you're not allowed it. It's, it's none of those things. It's because by taking the Lord's Supper, you are saying, Jesus is the blood shed for me. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is the bread of life for me. I've left Exodus. I've walked away from sin so that I can eat of him and have eternal life. And if that's not true of you, then, then this meal isn't for you. But so much more significantly, what I want you to see is not merely that the meal is not for you, not that the church membership is not for you, not that baptism is not for you, but that Jesus and his blessings are not yet yours. This is the call of the Exodus. If it demands you do anything, we go back to the beginning. It demands you to consider the Exodus of Jesus, the release of sin, the defeat of Satan, the satisfaction of God's law, the defeat of death. You see all of those things in the Exodus of Jesus today. Know this. You are not in God's covenant. You are not one of his people. You are not released from the slavery of sin in Egypt unless by faith. And faith alone, you have seen this truth of Jesus and simply trusted in it. Not asking for a gift, for a sacrifice, for an act of obedience or an offering. Nothing you can give. The only thing God demands is that you, in your mind, in your soul, call on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him to be your savior. And you will be one who partakes in the exodus from death. Let's pray. Father God, what a, what a glorious story we see unfold before us in the pages of your most holy scripture. We thank you, Lord God, that you have inspired these words to be written so that they could be continually remembered by your people throughout history. And yet, Lord God, Lord God we know that, that in greater fulfillment, you have told us in, in 1 Corinthians 10 that in fact this was all written down so that we, the people of God, the people of Jesus Christ as Christians after the fulfillment of the New Testament so that we can go and read it and see in it a warning and an encouragement and, and an exhortation and an example. Father God, in this story, we see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we don't see that, then there is no significance of the Exodus to us. 
Father God, we see the great, powerful victory that Jesus has won over the gods of this world, over the idolatry of our hearts, over the wrath of God, over the the claim of death and the grave, over the power of Satan. We see all that he has accomplished. And we say, Lord Jesus Christ, please give it to us. Please, by faith, would you allow us to be partakers with you. And Father God, for those who are, who are even thinking this and hoping this and praying this for the first time today, would you be gracious, Lord God, receive them and make them known to us so that we can encourage them, pray with them, and add them to our number. Father God, I pray that those who are still far off, still hardened by sin, still not listening to the call of the gospel, would you break their stony hearts? Would you turn them to ice that they may melt in the presence of the, the grace that is coming from the Son of God? Lord God, would you please convert them and then add them to our number. And for all of us Christians who know you, may we remember to be those who who depart from sin, who, who know that we are enriched and empowered with every blessing we need, that we would be those who who go out in faith and rely on you no matter how ridiculous the situation seems. And may we be those who remind ourselves in corporate unity and in individuality that we are those who are saved by grace in the blood of Jesus alone. Would you glorify yourself in our midst this morning, Lord God? In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.